0: All right. Good morning. Good morning. We're in part three of a long series. Uh, It's called Why God? And we are, um, I'll I'll give you a recap in a second, but I just want to clarify a few things. First is that this is one long sermon that we broke up into small pieces, so it's bite-sized. And when we started this, we thought it was going to be like feeding your kid vegetables, like it's something that needs to be taught and you might not like it but we have to give it to you but the response i've been getting has been positive you guys are like this is something cool like i i, I needed to hear this or i needed to you know so this is great um we have more of where that came from <laughs> today specifically it might be a little more offensive and i just want to make sure offensive towards people who've been christians for a long time so if that's you uh, i just want to apologize but it's not my intention to offend you Um, because for some people, and if you guys were here last week, we talked about a few things where you said, "Gods, I based my whole Christian life on this thing, and now you just took it away from me. And so... Uh, if that's you, I want to apologize, but stick around because in next week we're going to start rebuilding the things I've been destroying. So you've got to come next week. If you stop coming after this week, then you're going to be like, oh, I have no foundation. Okay, so, <laughs> so let me give a quick recap as to what we've been talking about. We've been talking about some roadblocks in our, in our faith. We've been talking about how sometimes when we face challenges, like somebody asks you a question at school, like, hey, you know, um, if you're... Christianity is so great, then how do you explain the fossil records that says, you know, one thing that's opposed to what the Bible says? And you're like, oh no, what do I do? Right? So for those of you who are like that, this is what's been happening. So let's, this is a diagram I showed last week. From faith, we walk away from our faith because we face a wall or something, and then we end up in atheism, right? And that's a totally legitimate response for somebody that's challenging you, you know, somebody challenges you and said, hey, have you thought about this? And you're like, you're right, I have not thought of that. And for some of you, you've been taught to give biblical answers to fact-based questions. So if they say like, well, how do you explain this scientific proof? And then you give a Bible verse, and then these people are like, but I don't believe in the Bible. Why are you giving me Bible answers? Because that doesn't mean anything to me. And you're, you just found out that your arsenal of things that you use to protect your own faith is now gone. So um, people often walk away to atheism. What well, we've been talking about for the past few fast. Past few weeks is that when in atheism, if uh, not atheism, in your faith, if you get, if you come across a challenge, it's not an invitation to walk towards atheism, but instead we're hoping that we would do this. That from our faith, we walk the other direction to a different, stronger, deeper version of our faith, which I like to call Faith 2.0. So this is what we've been focusing on for the past few weeks, and we've been, and I've been kind of poking holes at your Faith 1.0, <laughs> and some of you have been like, oh, I don't like that. So, uh, So we've been talking about people leaving the church because of these challenges that we face. And for some of you, uh, you're like, yeah, I could totally relate with that. Or maybe that was your story and somehow you made your way back to the church. Or maybe you know somebody who walked away from the faith because of some of the challenges that they faced. Maybe it wasn't somebody asking tough questions. Maybe you lost somebody in your life. You prayed for one thing and then... You know, like, I wanted to save this person's life. This person was dying, and the person actually died, even after you prayed selflessly and sacrificially. And so you're like, I-, I don't know if I could trust in God anymore. So when it comes to leaving the church, we broke it down to two things. Last week, we talked about the first one, the problem with God, that a lot of times we put our faith in God, but the God that we place our faith in is actually a made-up God. And if you're like, what is that? I was in here last week. Tell me what you're talking about. Um, so here's a list of things that, um, that I talked about last week. Here are the gods that we made up, and these gods are not biblical at all. Like the first one we talked about is called the good for good God, where you believe that only good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. So if bad things start happening to good people, you're like, I can't believe in God because bad things are happening to good people. And I quickly refuted that by saying Christianity was founded on a very, very, very good person being crucified to the cross. And the first 300 years of Christianity was about like all these people who are trying to do good in this world being persecuted for following a very, very good person. Christianity at its foundation is bad things happening to good people. So we know, I don't know where we got that idea from, but we were taught that somewhere sometime, right? And we're here to talk about a stronger, deeper, and more true to the scripture version of our faith. And this God has no room for that. The second one is called a genie God, where we pray selflessly, sacrificially to a God and say, please answer my prayer in the way that I want it to. And God says, you can't control me. I answer your prayers in the way I see fit, right? But when we ask God, can you please do this for me and it doesn't work that way, you're like, I can't believe in God anymore because he's not acting the way that I want him to. That God does not exist. Third one is called the Goosebumps God where maybe when you were younger, you used to go to retreats or you, know, you, you had a worship session where you're like, ooh, Goosebumps, I feel God right here in this, you know. and now a few years later, you don't feel him anymore. And so you're equated this, oh, God is not here with uh, I, I, that I don't feel God with, God is not here anymore. And there's nothing in the Bible that promises you that, okay? And so if you put your faith in that God and you're starting to lose faith in that, last week I said, that's a good thing because that's not the God that the Bible characterizes for us. Guilt God, every time you're having a good time, you're feeling like, I'm starting to feel bad that I'm having a good time because I'm sure God is judging me right now. God must be anti-fun. Or if when God says, I have this free gift of grace and love for you, and you're like, no, I need to earn it somehow, it's like that God does not exist. God gives you freely his love, and you don't have to earn it. There's nothing you can do to earn it. Nobody here actually deserves it, but he just gives it for free, and you shouldn't feel guilty for that. And the third one, uh, the last one, I'm sorry, the last one on the list we talked about was the gap God, and I had to use word gap because it started with the letter G. As you can see, everything starts with the letter G, right? Gap God, where if there's something in your life that you can't explain, like long long time ago they couldn't figure out why there were earthquakes and because there was a gap in their understanding they said it must be god and they filled it up with god right but as we start to discover more and more new things we start to realize oh no we could take god out of that and put science in there and it makes complete sense and we talked about how science and god are not opposed to each other but we made it that we made it into this world where god and science are uh, are opposed to each other so that was the list I gave you guys last week, but there's actually more to this, and some of you guys have shared some of them with me. Like some of you guys said, oh, angry God. It's like, yeah, whenever I read the Old Testament, it seems like God is really angry. He has an anger problem, right? And, or, or some of you are like, oh, God is about punishment. Like I do something wrong, he throws a thunderbolt at you, right? Whatever it is, right, there's all these different versions of God that we created for ourselves, and the, one of the reasons why people leave the church is because they have an issue with God, but that God does not exist. So that's what we talked about last week, and some of you came up to me and said, oh, that God that you talked about that you destroyed, that God, um, I put my faith, that's what I said yes to when I accepted Jesus into my life. And I said, well, that's okay where you started. And probably you were taught that, you know, in Sunday school, because as kids, that's where we have to start. We have to start from a place where, you know, kids can understand what we're talking about, you know, so they have different type of categories than we do as adults. But we can't stay there forever. And as we grow up, we have to make sure that we deepen our faith as we grow up now last week uh i, I put this screen up on uh, this slide up okay this is one of the childhood gods we have to get rid of i said this feelings should never be used as proof for god's involvement in your life this is a goosebumps god i was talking about last week i said this i said that if you um have grown up feeling god you know during your worship time or when you're reading the bible or you're having these moments in your life and now you don't feel them anymore you know then you know then i said this i said the feelings should never be used oh wait go back Feelings should never be used as proof for God's involvement in your life. And in context, it makes sense. But some of you said, you know, some of us, we take notes based on what's on the screen or we take pictures of what's on the screen. And out of context, this seems like if you're experiencing something, it can't be God. So I want to make a correction. I want to apologize that, that what's on the screen, if taken out of context, it could be, it could be taken as something wrong. So I want to update it with this. Next, there we go. The lack of feelings should never be used as proof for God's lack of involvement in your life. Um, so you can take a picture of that and <laughs> take, write that down. Cross off whatever you wrote down last week. This is more accurate to what I was trying to communicate. Thank you so much for those of you who brought this up to me. I want to make sure that we're all on the same page. In my mind, I thought I was making it clear, but, but that's because I've been staring at that for a very long time. Okay, so uh, le- next screen. So last week, we talked about problems with God. Today, we're going to talk about how the Bible is used. Because this is the second most common reason why people leave the faith or even avoids the faith in the first place. And um, when I say how the Bible is used, what I really mean by this is not just how it's used, but how it is understood. Okay? How it's understood. And the reason why I say that this is, you know, how it's understood and how it's seen is because of this. This is a joke that we used to tell in seminary. We used to say this. We believe in the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures. You know, it's like we take in the Bible and we elevate it to this level of deity almost. And, you know, we, we start, inside the church, we start these battles about, is it inerrant? Is it, you know, is it infallible? Is, are there any mistakes in the Bible? Are there contradictions in the Bible? And we get into these needless debates. And, you know, we waste a lot of time doing that. And for those of you who grew up in the church saying like, yes, the Bible is so important, right? I may offend you today, but I want you to hear me out to the very end and take and and if you're the kind of person that starts counting the tiles on the ceilings or or you kind of doze off and you go somewhere else in your mind, I want you to pay close attention because if you miss some details, um, you might totally get the totally different you might get a different version of the message I intend to give today. It's not intended to offend anybody. It's intended to deepen our faith. So be very careful of what you're about to you know. You can listen to this again online, it's free, you can listen to it anytime you want. Or subscribe to that podcast. Okay. So I want to give you a quick story of where I come from, okay? So when I became a Christian, I became a Christian around the end of my 11th grade year. And by the 12th grade, I was looking for a mentor. I'm like, I really want to grow deep in my faith. I want to learn more about who this Jesus character is. And not only that, I remember people asking me tough questions, people who didn't agree with my choice of becoming a Christian. And these questions that came my way, I didn't have answers for, so that's why I started seeking out mentors. Like, can you teach me what the Bible says, how I could defend my faith? And as I started doing that, I came across this person who comes from a different denomination. It's called the Calvary Chapel Movement. And these guys are super Bible people. They like to read the Bible. They highlight things. They memorize scripture. Everything I'm really bad at, okay? And as, as they were doing that, I was, like, kind of drawn into it. And, and so one of the mottos that they had, and maybe you heard this before, is this. Let me see if you could complete the sense. If the Bible says it, okay, that's not what I was talking. Okay. <laughs> that settles it. That that that's that's if the Bible says it, <laughs> that settles it. So, if I were to come to these people and say, "Well, I learned in school today that and you, you know that the earth is not 6,000 years old, but it's actually a few billion years old, right?" They would say, "Well, if the Bible says it, no discussion, it settles it." Or if or when I said, "You know, it turns out there's no historical record of a worldwide flood. Did you know that? And they're like, well, it's either what they say, in those fallible human beings, or it's what the Bible says. The Bible says that there was a worldwide flood, so it must. if the Bible says it, it settles it. No discussion, right? And this is how I was brought up in the first few years of my faith. Like, oh, okay, I just need to study the Bible, and the more I study the Bible, the more I understand, you know, how I ought to see, how I ought to see the world. And anybody who goes against what, it, what I've seen in the world, including scientists and historians, reputable scientists, then they're wrong because the Bible's always right, right? And later on, discovered that maybe the way we interpret the Bible might be wrong, but that's a different sermon. Okay, so with that mindset in mind, I also learned this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for? Yes, for the Bible tells me so. And okay, here's the thing. This is wrong. And you're like, okay, I'm leaving. No, no, stay, stay. <laughs> It's not the first part that's wrong. We know that Jesus loves us, but it's not because the Bible tells us so. And I want to explain that for the rest of this sermon because I, that will help us understand, that will help us understand how we ought to look at the Bible. What, the, what role does the Bible play in a Christian's life? Okay, and, and you know, we do a lot of things with the Bible. We... we we debate with, about the Bible. We read it and we share it with other people. We do all these things, right? But we want, in a deep, deep down inside, we want to know that the Bible is infallible. We want to make sure that the Bible is inerrant. We want to make sure that the Bible is perfect as it is because we have a fear. And if we were honest with each other, maybe we would share our true feelings about the Bible. Which is this: this is our fear. If any part of the Bible is proven wrong, then your entire faith crumbles. So if somebody were to come out and have some archaeological, archaeological evidence that the world was not created in six days, or if you found some proof that, that if you look into the scriptures, that, that it says that the first two people were Adam and Eve, but then people, I don't know how, but found some proof, maybe there is some way to prove it right or wrong, that that's not the, fa- that's not the truth. I'm not saying it is or it isn't. I'm just saying if, okay? You're afraid that that proof is going to destroy your relationship with Jesus. Right? And so you do everything you can to protect it. You'll do everything you can to, to play these mental gymnastics to make somehow make, make things make sense to you so that your, relation, your faith is intact. And that's one of the things that we're afraid of, is when these people who are trying to attack us start attacking the Bible, I've got to do everything I can to defend it. Even if it means to insult or make the other person look bad, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that my faith is intact. That's our fear. But you see, the, with that fear comes a huge, huge problem and the problem is this, that we start to create claims about everything that compromises theology and the sciences. So th- I'll give you an example. A few days ago, I was talking to somebody uh, from this church, and they were saying, Cos, do you believe the world was created in six days? And I said, oh, why do you ask? And this person said, well, I believe it wasn't six literal days, it was six figurative days six periods of time or there's a verse in the bible that says one day is like a thousand years to the lord so maybe it was six thousand years or or you know and they start in you know when you read genesis chapter one it doesn't say anything except for what it says but we start throwing our own ideas into this thing why because we don't want to look weird in front of people who claim that the world is older right and so what we're doing is we're compromising scripture by throwing our own ideas, by trying to defend it, trying to make sense of it, we're, trying, we're changing scripture so it makes sense to us. But not only are we doing that, sometimes we go beyond that and we start altering science, sometimes history, just so that we could keep the verse intact. So we, we end, what we end up doing is we start playing with the facts. We start messing with things that were not meant to be messed with. So what, what we end up as, we end up as Christians who's played around with the Bible so much that the theology is completely out of whack. Or we become Christians who doesn't believe in science or history or any of those things anymore, which is kind of crazy, right? But that's what happens when we're trying so hard to defend Scripture because what happens, well, you know, defending Scripture for the sake of protecting our faith. Do you see the dangers of this? And so what do we do about this? What do we do about this? Because there's some things, if you're honest with me, that we read the Bible and say, that seems kind of outdated. That does not go along with what I learned in school. You know, like, what do we do with that? So I have some good news for you. I have some good news for you. The first thing is this, that Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. It's actually the opposite. The Bible exists because of Christianity. Think about it this way. A birth certificate, okay? You do not exist because of your birth certificate, the birth certificate exists because of you, okay? But for some reason, okay, we flipped it around. The New Testament is a document of what happened, not because it was written, it must have happened. It's because it happened, it was documented, and now it's preserved for us to read today. Okay, so I'm going to give you a quick history lesson as to how the Bible was put together, and this will clarify more of you know, the confusion that you're probably feeling right now. It'll clarify more of the things I'm trying to explain to you right now. So with every history lesson, we need... A timeline, because I love timelines. So here's a timeline. And if you can't see it, we're going to zoom into it pretty soon, so don't worry about it. So these are the main years that I want, main dates that I want you to, you don't have to memorize. Them, I'm not going to test you, but it's good to know. So if you're taking notes, okay. So the first date we're going to look at, next slide, is the year 30. Now, we believe that Jesus died, uh, the, 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 the whole thing in the Bible happened the year 30. Um, you're like, but I thought Jesus was born at zero, And so he lived until 33, the year 33, shouldn't that be the year that he, you know. Um, This is gonna sound weird, but Jesus was born before his birthday. (laughs) Let that rest with you for, okay. No, it's because we went from the Julian calendar, wait, was it the other way? What what kind of calendar are we in now? History teacher? (laughs) Julian? Gregorian? Which one are we in now? Okay, so we went from the Julian to Gregorian calendar. When we made that switch and they started doing the math, they found out that they were off by a few years. That's why the birth of Jesus is actually before the birth of, birthday of Jesus. Okay. So in the year 30, uh, so the first thing that we want to make note is this, that the first year is, next slide. Okay, the crucifixion happened. We know historically, not just through the Bible, but historically that Jesus, a man from Nazareth called Jesus, we're talking about sources outside the Bible, confirms for us that Jesus died in the year 30 uh, because he's hung on a cross. Okay. And according to eyewitnesses, we know, next slide, is that in that same year, just a few days later, three days later, that he was resurrected. He was brought back to life, okay? So we know that much. And if you read on in the historical, historical accounts, there is another thing that happened in the year 30, which happened about a month and a half to two months after the resurrection of Jesus, which is the birth of the church, the birth of the church. So these are the three things that happened. Now, the way that the birth of the church happened was people – Okay, now remember, this happened all in one city called Jerusalem. It didn't happen years ago. It didn't happen on the other side of the world. The way the church started was, hey, guys, Jesus died on the cross. And people would be like, yeah, I was there just a month ago. It happened right there. If they're not pointing at nowhere. They're pointing right at the hill that they could see from their backyard. Like, right there. That's where he died. I was there. My neighbor was there too. Like, it's not something that I heard a friend who said to a friend that I heard from a friend. It's, I saw it. It was right there, you know, Right? And then this claim of Jesus being resurrected, people also saw. They're like, yeah, I saw Jesus. He was walking right there. And I saw him walking over there. And he was eating with somebody over there. And he had a hole in his hand. And he was throwing it off over there. Like, it wasn't a story of a story of a story or a rumor. It was something that happened that people could not deny. Now, we, we tend to think, like, because it happened so long ago, people might, must have not been smart or whatever. No, no, no. These people are intelligent people who are making these claims respected people who were making these claims, and they had nothing to, to gain by making these claims. As a matter of fact, they had everything to lose because by making these claims, they became a threat to the Roman Empire. So these people are saying, I know it could cost me my life, but I can't deny what I saw. I saw Jesus walking around with a hole in his hand, right? And he was eating. It's not a hallucination because there are hundreds of people who saw him at the same time. Hallucinations don't work that way. And we're not talking about some disembodied ghost because people ate with him. People gave him a high five. You know, people were hugging him. People were eating with him. But he has disappeared. Everyone's like, it's so weird. It's like a human, but not. I, I can't, this, right? And from that, the church started. They're saying there's a man who resurrected, and because of that, we can't deny the fact that Jesus said that there's a new age starting right now where love is going to reign. And these people said, okay, we want to be a part of that. And so the church is born. Now, a few years after that, in the year 66, there's a guy named, um, th- uh, there's a guy named Emperor Vespasian who came on the scene. This is what he looks like, or we think he looks like, you know, when you have something chiseled and carved out. You can say, hey, make me look more muscular, you know. So we don't know if that's what, it's not a photograph, it's an art piece, right? Okay, so uh, he wasn't an emperor at the time in 66. He became an emperor a little bit later. But what happened in 66 was there was all these Jewish people who started revolting. This has nothing to do with Christianity, but the Jewish group of people. And they're revolting against the Roman Empire. They're like, we don't like being told what to do. We want to worship our God without any restrictions. We want to do everything we, we, we want that God has called us to do. But the Roman Empire, you bullies, you guys are the reason why we can't do this. So they decided to pick up their swords and start a revolt. But in the middle of the revolt, the emperor at the time said, I've had enough of this. I'm going to go get my boy Vespasian, and I'm going to have him go and destroy this, stop this revolt. So what he did, Vespasian gathered all his armies, and he gathered all his people and made a big ring around all the Jewish people, that were revolting, and they started funneling them into the city of Jerusalem. And as soon as everybody was in Jerusalem, he said, you know what? I just got a call. I got to go to Rome because there's something that's going on. And as he goes to Rome, he finds out that he's a new emperor, and that's how he becomes Emperor Vespasian. But as he's there, he wanted to finish the job that he started in Jerusalem. So he says, son, his son's name is this guy, Titus, who eventually becomes the emperor. Titus is sent to Jerusalem to finish the job. And while he's in, 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 uh, when he's while he's still in um, um, Jerusalem, what he decides to do is he takes like all his workers and he starts to dig a ditch around Jerusalem and builds a wall around it so that nobody could go in or out of the city. So these people have no more food. They're starting to starve, right? And as people start surrendering, he would take the key people from the Jewish revolt movement, and he'll take him outside, crucify him outside the, the city walls, so the whole world could see what would happen. Like, if you were to go against the Roman Empire, this is what's going to happen, and thousands of people were crucified. There's never been that many people being crucified in that area ever before or since that moment in history. Okay, and then in, on August 7th, the year 70, okay, Titus decides to destroy Jerusalem. So, on the timeline, the temple is destroyed in the year 70, August 7th, year 70. And on that day, okay, hundreds of thousands of people were taken out of Jerusalem and they were forced into slavery. Slavery. History tells us that there's so much slavery, that so many slaves came out of that situation, that the price. Of slaves went down because there's so much supply, More there's more supply than there's demand. I mean, this went down in history as one of the worst things that could happen to a group of people, okay? Um, other things happened, uh, like another thing that happened was Titus decided that he was going to steal all the gold and all the jewelry, but he burnt down the place first. And when he burnt down the place, gold started to melt and seep between the cracks of the stones of the temple. And so he said, we, need to dis- we have to take down every single piece of... Of, of stone brick from this temple because we want to scrape all the gold that we can so that's why all every single stone except for one wall which is the wailing eastern wall that's still there today every single stone was taken off of each other just to make sure that they could get all the riches they can from that from that building so the temple was destroyed now the, the temple being destroyed in the jewish mind is the same thing it's equivalent it's the equivalent of us saying Somebody came in and destroyed Washington, D.C. in the White House. If somebody were to come in and destroy the building, it's one thing to destroy a building, but it also stands as the building that represents the entire nation. And so any historian from the year 70 on that was Jewish would always make sure to put that event in their history. Always. Okay, so... So from the year 70 to probably the year 100, anytime somebody mentioned about Jewish history or anything that happened, they will always use the destruction of the temple as an anchor point to say this happened whatever years after the destruction of the temple because the destruction of the temple destroyed and changed Judaism for the rest of history, even until today, okay? So this is a very, very important thing. Now, why do I bring this up? It's because the destruction of the temple is not mentioned in any of the texts in the New Testament. And the the scholars are wondering, why, why, why isn't it in there? Why isn't it in there? Why did they forget to write it? No, no. The reason why it's not written in there is because it hadn't happened yet when they wrote the New Testament. So when we think about when the Bible was written, next slide, people often say that it's actually between the year, like about the, the year 50, 40 to about 50 to about the year 69. But some people are like, no, there's some proof that, you know, some of the books, and to be honest, I agree with these people who say that of all the books in the New Testament, five of them were probably written after. So I would say, sure. So it goes up probably up to like the year 90. So just to give them some leeway, we're saying, sure, we'll give you the benefit of the doubt. It probably happened from the year 40, 50 to, to the year 90. That's when the entirety of the New Testament was written, okay? Now, th- why is this important? It's because there are people who are historians who would say that the Bible is written after year 100. And when you ask them why is the year, why do you think that's when the Bible was written, they will always say something like this. Well, it's because I don't believe in the resurrection. It's crazy to believe that somebody died and came back to life again. We have historical proof that this guy named Jesus died, right? And we have proof, we have written documents about how he came back to life, but we don't believe that. So it must be a legend. It must be a myth. Yeah, that's what it is. It must be a myth. And if it's a legend or myth, it takes at least one generation, and that's a minimum of 70 years, to pass before you could say that something like that happened and people readily accept it, right? Because if you make that claim any year before that, there's somebody that's still alive that will say, uh, excuse me, I was there, I saw it, that's not what it happened. So they say that if we were to believe in the resurrection, which I don't believe in, that's what the historians would say, then the resurrection, the this, this, this story must have been penned down sometime the, after the year 100. Okay, are you guys following? Cause, okay, sometimes I talk really fast, which means you have to listen fa- faster. Okay, so when that happened, okay, so people, that's w- what they're saying. But we have proof. We have written down proof of things that points to the fact that, that these things were already being talked about before the year 100. Okay, so the, the thing that people are saying is the Bible is not true because it's a bunch of mythologies. Now, we know how people wrote mythologies and legends back then. And the way that the Bible is written has, looks nothing like the way, that the arts, the writing style looks nothing like these other writers who write mythologies. I'll give you an example. This is the book of Luke, chapter 3. Tell me if this sounds like myth- mythology to you. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, okay, Herod, tetriarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetriarch of I- Ituria and Triconitus and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene. I mean, he's giving specific names at the what year, right? Look at the next part of this verse. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Ze- Zechariah, in the wilderness. Okay, this is Luke's way of saying this. I have thoroughly investigated everything. Go ahead and fact check me, I dare you. This is not how people wrote mythologies back then. This is how people wrote history back then. And even for historians, this is more detailed than any history that we found in the archaeological digs. So this is something that's big. As a matter of fact, you see where it says Annas and Caiaphas, that there's two high priests? There has never been a time in Jewish history, except for this time in history, where they had two high priests. The way it works is, Annas was a high priest, that's what they feel like god appointed for them right but the roman empire didn't like annas so the roman empire said okay caiaphas you're going to be our new um uh high priest but the jewish people are like we're not going to trust caiaphas we're going to keep talking to annas as a high priest so during that time they actually had two high priests so that is unique to this time in history and so when luke writes all these details down he's basically making a statement saying this is not mythology this is history as a matter of fact When Luke wrote these words down, when Matthew wrote his words down, when Paul wrote his words down, he didn't, when they were writing, they weren't thinking like, let's see, what should I write in the Bible? Because at the time they wrote these things down, they didn't think these words were inspired by God. As a matter of fact, take a look at this. The New Testament was preserved because it was true, not because they believed it was inspired. These people copied the the copies of the copies of the copies and made it last for hundreds of years. Not because they thought that this was the word of God. They wrote this down because they said, this is what really happened. I can't deny what happened. And you know what? My kids need to find out learn about this history. Listen, because this is such an important event that happened in our lives. Over time, people started to recognize it as scripture. But right at the time it was being written, it was not considered scripture. Old Testament, which at the time was the only testament, so it was it's called the Bible, you know, but... The New Testament at the time it was being written was not considered scripture. And so people wrote these things down because they saw something meaningful happen and they couldn't deny that it happened and they wanted to make sure they got passed on to the next generation. That was the foundation of the writings of the New Testament. Okay, so we're going to move on to the timeline. So from this, we go way over to this side to the year 312. Now, let me kind of give you a quick overview of what happened between then and now in this 280 plus years difference, Okay. In the year 312, Constantine the Great became the new emperor of Rome. Constantine. There were other people who were candidates to becoming the the, the new emperor. They had to fight it out, but Constantine eventually won. He goes down in history as the first Roman emperor to become Christian. Now, you could talk to any historian, you know, people who study this stuff. They'll tell you that it wasn't because he had an encounter with Jesus that he became a Christian. It was actually a political move. He decided to become a Christian because, number one, his mother was actually a Christian. Now, remember, this isn't a time when Christianity was illegal. You could have been killed for being a Christian. As a matter of fact, for being a Christian back then, remember you hear stories about how people being tossed to the lions? That was that time where if you were a Christian, you could be tossed to the lions. They could boil you in hot oil. They would do everything they can to kill you because you refused to recognize the emperor as your lord and savior. Instead, you're like, I don't want to say that because I believe that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. That, that's what they would be saying. And so Christians were a threat. But even when it was illegal, Christianity grew. When, G- when, when, when Constantine said that Christianity is going to become, is, I'm going to be a Christian because I want to make Christianity the state religion, he wasn't doing it because he fell in love with Jesus. Historian wants to tell you that the reason why Constantine became a Christian is because it was the only way that he was able to unify all the Roman Empire together. He looked around and he said, because you know, remember there were other candidates who wanted to be emperor. So he had a following there for that emperor want to you know, be emperor. There's another following over there, another following over there. And after he became the emperor, he was like, how do I unify everybody? And upon talking to his mom and upon finding out the census of what kind of people were in the empire, he realized that the one thing that unifies everybody is that it turns out there's a lot of Christians. And so he said, from this day on, it is no longer illegal to be a Christian. Now, that should tell us something. That in the time between the year 70, when the temple was destroyed, to that time in history, uh, 3, uh, 312, Christianity spread like wildfire. Christianity, despite it being illegal and being dangerous, people became Christians left and right, including the mother of the emperor. So much that he had to say, it's okay to be a Christian now. As a matter of fact, Christianity is the state religion. I mean, that should be saying something about the power of Christ, right? So now, it's legal. And because it was legal, Constantine had to take other steps to make sure that the world was even more unified. So this is what he did. In the year 350, he um, – he, uh, I'll explain what those words mean in a second. Okay. This, this, um, so he realized that now that we're a Christian empire, which is an oxymoron in itself, but we're a, you know he looked around, and this is what he said. He said, although we are now a big one Christian family, there's some people over there who have been holding on to some texts. They call that the text according to John. Over here, there's a group of people who are reading this book. That's text that's, that's according to a guy named Matthew. There's some people over there who are reading texts that were written by a guy named Paul. And everybody would say, well, we have the real version. We have the real version. So in the year 333, easy to remember, 333, right? He said, okay, I want to bring everybody together, and I want everybody to sit down in this room. They call out the Council of Nicaea, okay? And I want you to all discuss as to what should be codified, meaning what should be included in the Bible, what should not. And Constantine said, and I want nothing to do with it because if I'm a part of it, then the people in my my empire are going to say, well, yeah, of course, you know, Constantine would put that in and cross this off and stuff like that. So I want nothing to do with it. I just want the respected Christian leaders to come together and talk about why their version of these texts should be included in this final thing called a codex. And so they did that. And by the way, interesting fact, St. Nicholas was there. Not Santa, as we know. But Sa- did I tell you about like the funny story about the Council of Nicaea? That th- This isn't historic. It's just a tradition that's been passed on that St. Nicholas punched somebody uh, at the Council of Nicaea because he got uh, irritated by somebody. I thought it was funny. He didn't, he didn't, make, he didn't make his own uh, good list. <laughs> okay, anyways. Okay. So anyways, they all got together and they were all meeting, convening, talking about it. And then they said, okay, we will include your version of the Jesus story and your, yours, yours, because there's historical proof that these things actually happened. They went back to say, when was it written? And they found out that these texts were written within the first few years after Jesus died and rose again. Okay. I guess this is a lot of history to just pour into your brain, uh, but you guys are smart, so you're good. Okay. Okay and so they took the text that they agreed on okay and they took some of the old testament they took all the old testament and put it together and now we have something called a codex plural will be codices okay and and uh today we have four copies of the oldest so the year 350 is where we could date back to the oldest version of a codified book okay and the first one is called the Sinaiticus, and the other one is called the vaticanus and basically <laughs> Uh, it, might, it was probably written way before that, but this is the earliest version we have of it, where the Old and New Testament are combined together. Okay, now why do I bring this up? Why is this so important? Because in the thre- year 388, that is for the, for the first time we have the word. Oh, next. There we go. This is when we have, for the very first time, in our history at least, the word Bible being used. So, like I said, why is this important? Why is this important? It's because, now let's go to the next slide so we can see the bigger picture now. It's because the greatest time of growth of Christianity, started in the year 70, and the Bible wasn't really given to us until 388, greatest growth of Christianity happened when people didn't have access to the Bible. For people to say that my faith is founded on the Bible is ludicrous. That's how it is taught in America now, but outside of this country until a few years ago, People would say, what, your faith is founded on a book? We find that as foundational. But original Christians didn't find it foundational because it didn't exist. And you're like, oh, but because I know all these verses, like in the Bible, like in, in, later in the New Testament, it says that the Bible is God-breathed. Yes, but when that was written, the Bible didn't exist. When they say that the Bible, the word of God is God-breathed, they're talking about the Old Testament because that was the only Bible that existed at the time. Or like, wait a minute, but Jesus calls himself the word. The word, shouldn't it be like divine? It's like, yeah, but you see, in your mind, you equate the word, the word, with the Bible, which it never was meant to be. We have misunderstood the role that the Bible plays in our faith. Here's a quote from a historian. Sorry, I don't have the name of the person who said this. Before the Old and New Testament were combined, Christianity had already replaced the pantheon of the Roman gods and was the state religion of the Roman Empire. Christianity was a huge deal even before the Bible existed. In other words, Christianity, next slide, made its greatest strides in the 282 years before anyone said, the Bible told me so. If you were to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, they're not going to end the sentence with, for the Bible told me so. So let's look at the map again, uh, the, the, the thing here. Okay, so so you're like, okay, Kots, I thought my foundation was the word of God, and you just kind of kicked that out of the way, and now I'm falling on the ground. What am I supposed to do? What is my foundation now? What is my foundation? Well, as it turns out, we have a glimpse, a small glimpse, into what they believe that their foundation was. And there's nowhere in the Bible that says that the Bible is the foundation of our belief. In 1 Corinthians, Paul, he's the, one of the first Christian leaders, he wrote this in one of the letters that were being circulated throughout the world. Okay, this is what he said, okay? This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. He says, everything I put my life into, telling you about Jesus, your faith is all scrap if Jesus didn't rise from the grave. Our foundation is Jesus rising from the grave. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. He's like, not only are we, wasting your time doing this thing, I'm also a crazy, dirty liar for telling you that something that didn't happen. So I'm putting all my eggs in this basket called resurrection. My faith is founded on this thing called Jesus rose from the grave. Because if that one thing isn't true, then everything I'm doing is pointless. As a matter of fact, I'm a liar. Continues, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith, your faith is futile. It's a house of cards that crumbles if they just take one thing out, the whole thing falls apart. If somebody uh, disproves something in the Bible, like the flood didn't happen, take that out, the whole thing falls apart. Your faith is futile if Jesus didn't rise from the grave. You are still in your sins. You're like, yay, Jesus has forgiven me. Nope, that didn't happen because Jesus didn't rise from the grave. He made a few claims that could have been true, but there's no way to prove it because he didn't rise from the grave. Anybody could say something and die but nobody else could make a claim, die, and predict his own resurrection and actually pull it off, right? So he's like, everything you believe about your, your faith, where you stand with God, all junk if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the grave. Then those also who have fallen asleep, that's code for died, in Christ are lost. If one day you think, oh, you know what, so-and-so died, but I'll be reunited with that person once, you know, in the future when I see Jesus, he's like, nope. That stuff, that's junk everything that you, hang, that you hang on to that's good about Christianity, it's all founded on this one thing that Jesus rose from the grave. He's like, that's the one thing that you should put your faith in. Not in some book, but on an event that took place. And then he concludes by saying this. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all, of all people most to be pitied. As a matter of fact, the whole world should look at us and feel sorry for us. That's how much Paul the Apostle, first Christian leader, placed, that's how much emphasis he placed on the resurrection. Everything falls apart if the resurrection didn't take place. Everything. Everything that he worked for, every martyr died for nothing if this didn't take place. I'm wasting my time. You're wasting your time coming to church on Sunday morning if the resurrection didn't take place. So like I said, Jesus loves me, this I know. Not because the Bible tells me so, but for the eyewitnesses saw the resurrected Jesus and experienced his love. We should change the lyrics to that song. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the eyewitnesses saw the resurrected Jesus and experienced his love. Okay. (laughs) It's a mouthful, but I'm sure we can pull it off one day. And when he talks about eyewitnesses, he's talking about someone like Luke. We just talked about Luke, right? Luke, and he is an investigator. He investigated, talked to a lot of people. He, he interviewed people, and he came to the conclusion that, yes, he rose from the grave. We're talking about John, John the apostle who, who, who saw Jesus die on the cross. He was there in front of the cross as they, he was being stabbed by a spear into his chest, right? And then he was also the one that said, Jesus, are we going to really have a fish barbecue right now? Like, he actually had a meal with Jesus after the resurrection, right? We're talking about Paul. Paul, somebody who really wanted to kill the Christian movement. He thought it was his God, God-given mission to destroy Christianity, only to find out that God was trying to speak through the resurrection of Jesus, and now Paul became the number one advocator of Christianity. That eyewitness. We're not just talking about some random person walking down the street. These people are listening. As a matter of fact, I'm talking really fast. Okay, I'm getting really excited. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15, the same chapter we just read through, Paul actually lists names for us of people who are eyewitnesses. He said some of these people are dead now, you know, has fallen asleep, but there are still some people you could talk to today that are eyewitnesses. You could find out for yourself if this really happened or not. This is, again, their way of saying fact-check me. In any way that was available 2,000 years ago, To prove an event actually happened they use those methods to prove to everybody that jesus actually rose from the grave and these people who saw jesus walking around hanging out with people talking to people eating with people you know uh, these are the people who say not only did i see this person walking around i experienced his love and it changed my life paul if you read all of his letters we have a whole bunch of them in the new testament he'll tell you how his life changed because he encountered christ Our Christianity does not hang by a thread called the Bible. It's better than that. It hangs on this amazing event that happened 2,000 years ago called the resurrection. And we have all the proof that we could get to prove that it actually happened. But then something happened when Christianity came from Europe to America. Something happened. What happened was that the church has shifted our foundation from the resurrected Jesus to the Bible. Like the Bible all of a sudden became the proof that we needed to know that, that what we believe is true, right? And so this is for this reason. We start having these arguments and we start defending our faith. We start saying like, no, you're wrong. No, no, have you looked at the proof? No, no, you're wrong. right. And we, instead of loving the people they're supposed to love on, we're starting arguments with them. And that's what happens when you take the Bible and put it on a pedestal and put it at the same level as the Trinity. We're like, there's the, you know, there's, Jesus, and there's a Bible, and they're about the same, you know, and that would be called idolatry. But for some reason, it's okay to say that the Bible is that important in the, in, the, in the church, and that's unique to us. Outside of the last century in America, most people didn't agree with that statement, but today we elevate the Bible so much, and we fight for the Bible so much, and we start fights over the Bible so much. Inside the church, too, we have, like, different denominations arguing about whose translation is better than whose, and I'm, like, that's missing the whole point. The whole point of Christianity is to love one another like as Jesus has loved us. And we miss that because we've put so much emphasis in the Bible. Now, I am not telling you that the Bible is not important anymore. Read the Bible every day, okay? And uh, I'll tell you why in a second. But let me finish my thought about this idea of putting the Bible on a high pedestal. When we put the Bible, give so much importance to the Bible, we end up, we talked about the dangers before, we end up playing mental gymnastics to somehow make the worldview of the Bible fit the way that the scientists and the, and the historians, these ex- experts who study really hard on, on what they think how the world works, we, we try to f- shoehorn the Bible into the way that the, world understa- you know, the, the scientific evidence is around us. And in doing so, we're compromising theologically and we're compromising scientifically. And the Bible was never meant to go against that. The Bible was supposed to complement that. But the consequence of placing the Bible on such a high pedestal is either A, we start lying to ourselves. Oh, the Bible says this, but it probably really means this. Or we walk away from the faith towards atheism, saying I can't play these mental gymnastics anymore. I'm sick and tired of lying to myself. It'd be so much easier if I just said I didn't believe in any of this stuff. But as we talked about through this whole series so far, when we have a choice of going towards atheism because something doesn't make sense, we have a choice between going towards atheism or walking towards a deeper version of our faith, a deeper understanding of our faith, the Bible teaches us that the most important thing for us to do is to always consider that maybe God is calling us to move on from a Sunday school level of understanding God to a deeper, more adult understanding of who he is. And one of the things we have to embrace is that the role that the Bible plays in our faith. Our faith is not built on proving every single thing in the Bible to be true. Our faith is built on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the question, again, I want to ask is this. So why should we read the Bible? If the Bible is not the foundation of our faith, why should we read the Bible? Good question. I'm glad you guys asked. Okay. We believe in the Bible because we believe that Jesus rose from the grave. We read the Bible because once we establish our foundation that Jesus rose from the grave, and now you're saying, now I want to know more about who Jesus is that's a good reason to start reading the Bible. Now that we've established that Jesus rose from the grave and there's a resurrection and that we are all of this new creation that God is creating, that created for us, I want to know who God is. So I'm going to read the book of Genesis. I'm going to read the book of Exodus. I'm going to read this to find out what my standing is. Oh, it turns out I'm actually a sinner. You know, oh, it turns out that I don't have it all together. Oh, it turns out you read, that because, you read the Bible because you find out about who you are. And as you read it, you find out what God does in response to that. And as you find out how God responded to people in history, then it gives you an idea of how God's going to respond to you today. The Bible was never meant to be the foundation of our lives. It was meant to be the things that builds up our faith, not the things that, it's not the thing that creates our faith. Faith comes from the resurrection, and everything beyond that comes from the scriptures. But to think that you have to defend the Bible to defend your faith is a losing battle. So, I know I went long already, so let me just conclude this. Faith 2.0. At the core of our faith is not a book. It is a person of Jesus and his resurrection. If you missed anything I said today, because I know I threw a lot at you, this is the one thing that I want you to remember. At the core of our faith is not a book or a collection of books. (laughs) It is the person of Jesus and his resurrection. And next week, we're going to talk more about the person of Jesus. I know for the last three weeks, you're like, because you've been destroying my faith every week. (laughs) Next week, we're going to talk about who God really is and why we should look to Jesus to find out who Jesus is, uh, who God is. I know this has been hard and some of you are like feeling uncomfortable right now and part of the intention here was that it's time to move on from our childhood faith and moving to a more adult faith because the last thing I want to hear from you is I've outgrown my faith. I've gotten smarter and I don't have to believe in this junk anymore. First, it's not junk. And second, there's so much more to learn here, right? But as we grow older, I hope that our faith is also growing older with us. Amen? All right, let me pray for us.